while spontaneous laughter breaks out in the crowd before the introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Proops. And now the introduction. Wow. Kittens, chatons, gato titos, and cats of all stripes, welcome to the preemptive mirth that is the smartest man in the world, Proopcast, in a, a room full of mirth, a room full of jocularity, already a Bruin before I could even get to the microphone. This crowd seeks to provide their own entertainment, and if any insurrections in that direction are led tonight, I will want you to know that I will be quashing them by torchlight. <laughs> Smartest man in the world, the Proopcast, once again takes to the ether after our sojourn in the Caribbean Sea, or more precisely, the, the Southern Atlantic. Uh, and we're back from there and all around Cali for a week, and now back here in the friendly confines of Bar Lubitsch in Western Hollywood. Um, thank you. The remote Western outpost of Hollywood, as opposed to the cosseted Eastern part of Hollywood, which everyone knows is blue blood and cares not for the underlings. <laughs> We're across from the pleasure chest here, and of course, as you know, in just two days' time before this, uh, when this drops, it'll already be over, I think, but before we, uh, while we're recording this is the night before Thanksgiving, and as you know, that's the kickoff for the Fistmas season here at the pleasure chest. <laughs> you know, a lot of people forget the Wristmas tales, but they're really some of the sweetest, and the stars shone, and, and a scent wafted up in the east. And three wise, thank you. And three wise men stood, and a sheep went no. <laughs> Fistmas is the most divine of all the holidays, and it starts again here tomorrow. I'm planning. I have to get up early on Thanksgiving Day. By the time you listen to this, I'll have already done this, and I'll tell you how the story comes out before I even have it. Uh, I have to get up tomorrow and do a phone call because I'm going to Toronto. And as you know, the Canadians, being godless heathens and possibly communists. Uh, you've heard of Canada, Mexico of the North. Uh, Mexico with gla glaciers, as the English say. Uh, they, I have to phone them, and they don't have Thanksgiving. Their Thanksgiving is indeed in October, uh, preceding ours. And then they also have a Canada Day, which they don't even honor. Um, it confuses them, I think. How come we're having a day? Um, I thought every day was because we were here. Uh, the, I'm, I'm getting up quite early tomorrow, uh, like 6.30 to phone this radio station. And then, yeah, I'm going to stay up and watch the Thanksgiving Day Macy's uh, thing, which I don't know who the hosts are now. Uh, I watched it last year, and I think it's Matt Lauer. Uh, and maybe Meredith. I love Meredith, by the way. I've seen Meredith Vera in LAX, and she's f like Judy Garland size, like four foot eleven. She really is. She's pee-off sized, but perfectly formed. Uh, I adore Meredith Vieira. I'm so old. I remember when it was Betty White and Lauren Green, and that was before Betty White was ironic. It was like this was non-ironic Betty White. She was simply spunky and had a lot of sass. Uh, and why Lauren Green, who one is Canadian and two uh, was the head of the Cartwright clan on Bonanza, uh, I, I was never quite sure what the credentials were that allowed him to host my Thanksgiving morning every year. Uh, wouldn't you have had someone more like Glenn Ford or someone someone squinty-eyed and Western? Uh, we have to kill that bird. You know what I mean? Whereas Lauren Green was always like. Well, here comes the floor. I can't do Lauren Green. I'm reduced to doing Bad Burr Lives. <laughs> Lauren Green had a stentorian voice and a magnificent single called Ringo that if you ever get a chance to listen to the first 30 seconds of, do that. Uh, um, 
The best part of Bonanza was the opening of the show because a branding iron hit a map of Carson City and the entire map of Nevada burned to pieces while the titles were going. Uh, After that, the show went downhill. (laughs) Little Joe would fall in a girl. She'd get cancer or leukemia or some other non-Western disease. And then Haas was there. Haas was cool. I'm not that old. I don't remember Pernell Roberts, uh, Adam or whatever he was. Uh, but he, he fucked off with the North 40 after a couple of seasons. He Farrah Fawcetted the show. And uh, he, he David Caruso'd. I'm bigger than this show. I'll be back in 20 years as Chopper John. Stand by, America. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Dan Blocker was awesome, but it was boring. And then later they had uh, an awesome Chinese character named Hop Singh, who, guess what, was the cook. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Dinner ready, Mr. Carway. <laughs> they were a progressive show. It wasn't, it wasn't as lesbianic as the Big Valley. The Big Valley really, really took lesbian. There was no lesbian cake left because... <laughs> Barbara Stanwyck ate it all from a standing position. Uh, when that camera would swing in and Victoria put hands on hips surveying the landscape, that's such a great opening for any show. All shows would be better if the camera swung up on you and you had your hands on your hips and were going, yes. I shall assay this land. You over there, work harder. Yeah. Uh, Jack Lord in the Hawaii Five-O credit sequence because the camera swung up from below him and for no reason at all he was on a hotel balcony if anybody remembers standing clearly on a hotel balcony not even at the Five-O HQ or whatever just on a hotel balcony the camera swung up and the fucking forelock that was the same shape as the wave at the beginning of the show Jack Lord's hair emulated the wave at the very beginning and he just turned and give you that look like what the fuck are you looking at I live in Hawaii. I wear a blue serge suit every day, heedless of the weather of the island. And I drive a giant black Lincoln because all the cars are provided by Lincoln. I don't think anyone in Hawaii ever drove a giant black Lincoln that didn't deal fucking heroin or whatever. I don't even know if there is heroin in Hawaii. It seems kind of remote for heroin. More like really expensive coffee that's disappointing. And then they take you to a papaya farm, or what's the other one, a guava farm? I actually went to a guava farm. I mean, talk about not having stuff to fucking show you. I mean, the volcano, the double waterfall. We were on Kauai. The volcano, the double waterfall, the giant park thingy thingy. The thing that looks like Jurassic Park where they filmed Jurassic Park. The beach where they filmed South Pacific. And then, really, a guava farm on day two? Jesus Christ, even Cleveland will keep you going with a Klaus Oldenburg sculpture. A guava farm. And they were like, the guava? And you're like, stop right there. I I know enough about guavas. I'm inquisitive as the next person. And about tropical fruit, I think you'll find I have an insatiable thirst for knowledge. But after we've done the star anise and the breadfruit, I get off the train. Where's the weed farm? That's where I want to go. That's not an open secret there. I mean, exactly. The Big Island. It's on the Big Island. It's on Hawaii, not on uh, Kauai. Uh, has anyone ever been to... What's the weird little one? Nehi, is it? And then there's another one that's just a ranch that they don't allow anyone on that's owned by a private family and there's a bunch of Hawaiian cowboys that work there. I think you can go and do a picnic and then you have to fuck off. Is that Nihei? Anybody? No? Okay, fine. Thanks. Thanks, L.A. I got your... No, I got your back, for real. Great. 
Great Thanksgiving. I thank you. What do I give thanks for? My crowd. What was it called? Not Molokai. Not Molokai. Mo- people can go to Molokai, can't they? No, it's the other, the other one. The weird one is Molokai. Oh, the other weird one is Molokai? And then was, there is a Nihei, isn't there? What is there, eight islands in that archipelago? <laughs> I've been to like three or four. No one goes to Lanai, but it's an awesome uh, arrangement, a Lanai. I, I stayed once at the Four Seasons on the Big Island, but on the coast that they've kind of poured sand in, because there isn't any sand, it's all lava, so they've, they've poured sand in. And they put a golf course up because there was none naturally growing there. (laughs) But I think Gregor Mendel taught us several things as a horticulturist. One, if there are no greens and fairways, white people demand that those be bred into whatever the native landscape is. Columbus may have committed horrible genocide on the Arawak Indians, but the Caribbean is home to many beautiful golf courses. There's one in Hawaii there at the Four Seasons. And they gave me the last one on the left, the last room on the left. And the guy drove me up in a golf cart. First of all, when you check in, they put a lay on you, right? And then they gave me guava juice, which I adore. I adore guava juice. It's the, when you're high next to pancakes, guava juice. Uh, because the blood sugar goes right up. I don't know why people drink orange juice when they have um, uh, diabetes. If it was me, I would drink guava juice. I would be the Jack Lord of diabetes. Because I would be insisting on something Hawaiian where it didn't fit at all. He's on Hawaii Five-O. You remember the Mad Magazine version? Let's have some coffee. What was it? Let's have some donuts and pineapple juice. Donuts and pineapple juice? We're in Hawaii. Stop. You know, every two seconds they would do that. Uh, Let's have some pui for lunch. No one has pui ever. If you can help it, it's horrible. Uh, Unless you're gluing uh, medieval books back together. (laughs) Then pui, pui is most useful with illuminated manuscripts. I would be the jack lord of, uh, and they gave me the guava, and then he took me over in a golf cart, and he was Hawaiian, and he said, um, this one's my favorite, brah. And I was like, awesome. Uh, and then I realized why. I had a lanai out in front of my room, and then two steps from the lanai, or several steps, uh, sea turtles, giant ass sea turtles, and a sign above them that said, do not uh, harm or, or you know, run afoul. I can't remember the exact wording. I'm sure it didn't say run afoul. <laughs> Please do not seek to raise the ire of these noble reptiles. These seagoing reptiles seek only sanctuary. They need not your cacophonous melee. I don't know what it said. Leave leave the bloody turtles alone or whatever. And there was a bunch of turtles underneath the sign. And I said to someone later, how do they know to sit under the sign? I thought it was a fair question because there they were. So we did a corporate gig and it... um, I don't know. If you like things that osculate man bag, you would have liked that gig. And then uh, Colin Mockery, the older fellow from Who's Line, and I went back to my room uh, where we were um, getting some Ariana Puffington. So then we were Sharon Stone in a Helen Hayes with a buzz all drawn. And we, I said to Calls, I said, Calls, says I, um, I have a, 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 a flashlight in my utility cabinet. Yes, this room had a utility cabinet. I know, right? There was a washing machine and a drying machine. Does anyone call them that? I think dryer is the common coin. There's only two hints that I'm from another planet. One, I can't bend this finger. And two, I say drying machine. No one will know that I'm amongst you. Oh, and that I like Negro League Baseball. That would be the third clue that no other person on earth but him. Why? All the time. Uh, near the drawing machine, to, uh, uh, magneted to the wall. Magneted? 
It was one of those flashlights with a magnet on the side of it, right? Which only, like, next to wearing a phone on your belt. Anyone who actually needs the flashlight to live on the wall because reaching into the drawer will cut off those precious seconds that you need before the giant 8.5 L.A. Prieta apathy quake hits us and we're all reaching for the last bottle of Arrowhead water we have stowed under the seat of our Prius. I don't know why you'd have to have a flashlight on the wall, but apparently they did there. So anyways, I says, calls. I says, uh, take the flashlight and follow me. So he's high, and uh, he does, he obediently. And I take him out to the pass. We're on the lanai, and I brings it back out. We go down past the lanai to where the turtles are, and I go turn it on. And he, holy shit, because there was fucking five or six turtles. Uh, and it was like Cirque du Turtle They were... <laughs> Some of them were on their back while others did this to flip them over and whatnot. It was pretty wild. They were more organized than they had any right to be. So Thanksgiving. I mean, what do you say about a holiday that uh, causes the Detroit Lions to lose and families to yell at one another? Uh, every federal penitentiary, I think this might be one next to Super Bowl Sunday, the biggest day for shiving. Because uh, little unaware bitches come into the cell and bet a carton of cigarettes on the fucking game. And I told you not to take the spread in the Lions. Uh, and then, of course, uh, as I said, I would watch the uh, Thanksgiving parade, which I'm intending on doing tomorrow. Um, and I've realized that over the years, uh, the Thanksgiving parade and I have gone different ways in our interests. <laughs> when I was little, the idea of a giant balloon of underdog was about the most exciting thing I could think of. If you remember Underdog, Wally Cox, the immortal Wally Cox, was the voice of... Um, I can't really do a... Thank you, shoeshine boy. You're lovable and something... And then uh, he'd throw him a coin and the shoeshine boy would bite the coin as if wooden nickels were being given out in the 60s. Um, and then Simon Bar Sinister did... Uh, his voice was like um, Lionel Barrymore. That I remember. Yes, he'd go, Underdog... <laughs> I have a rain machine that I use to destroy the city. <laughs> and then there was a wolf that wore a gangster outfit. I can't remember his bloody voice, but in any case, and, the, and his girlfriend, Sweet Polly Purebred, who looks dead like Gwyneth Paltrow, just getting one in. Um, <laughs> separated at birth, you be the judge. Uh, in any case, now I watch it, and it's like there's some cartoon figure that I don't know. Uh, you know, it's Pusami uh, from the TV show Shik Shik. And you're like, oh, I don't know what that is. You know, and then from the popular game Death Race, it's Rapetron. You know, and I'm like, do we have a Rapetron balloon? I didn't, I don't remember. I don't remember rape being that popular in the old times. And then oh, a marching band, which are always just heinous, right? And then, uh, and then the stars, like when I was little, that would be, you know, whoever. I guess they'd, the Broadway stars of like the late 60s. So inevitably Robert Goulet or whatever, you know. Try to remember a time in September. You know, like, okay, right. And then now it's like that kind of sub-glee bullshit from the Jersey Boys. And then like, who are they? And then they get out there and they're uptown squirrel or whatever. And you're like... This fucking sucks. I am so glad I don't live in Pennsylvania and go into the city on Sunday to see shows. Because um, I'd have to sit through this piece of shit. So it's not quite as fun as it was, but uh, a lot of marijuana makes it fun, I'll tell you that. Uh, 
some champagne before you've eaten. Uh, I don't think there's anything like that feeling. We've all been to a wedding reception, not eaten lunch, and then just started guzzling champagne for whatever reason. I hate that fucking guy. Or that bitch is... I can't believe that fucking bitch is here. And then glug, 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 glug. Cut to you. I'm going to have a chocolate colored strawberry or whatever. And then, oh, fuck, it's all over my shirt. It's on my shirt. And then I'll take you to the bathroom. Come on, let's go to the bathroom. And fucking leave me alone. I slip. Ah! You know. And then that throbbing headache that feels like someone has put your head in a, in a, a vice just to ho- and, and turn the, what do they call the things on vices? The ratchety vice thing. There's nothing like a champagne headache in the middle of the daytime. And you can have that tomorrow if you work hard enough. Thank you. Put that booze right here, Mr. Ryan. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I give thanks for many things. I went online to look at some of the give thanks things just to see if I could get some inspiration. Yeah, I went online. And uh, there was a Reader's Digest one, and it was what you thought. You know, I like, you know, tapioca and... Uh, uh, I like milk products. Those are great. And, you know, it was a really, really dickless list. Then someone had written a list. I don't know who it was, but somehow theirs, when I wrote Reasons to be Thankful, whatever, in Google, uh, the first thing that came up was the Chinese government saying, there are no reasons. (laughs) You should be thankful you have a job. Now go back to work. Then the next reason was this anonymous person, whoever it was, you know, somebody, 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 that was their name. And um, uh, uh, generic McTavish. And they had like 80 reasons. So, okay, let's stop right there. First of all, no, there aren't 80 reasons. Two, uh, if you have thought of 80 reasons, some of them are going to not be as strong as some of the other reasons. (laughs) How many of those? I would say 65 to 70 of them. There is no list with 80 things on it of import. Even the Domesday book or whatever it was called that the king made the the English lords draw up of all the landowners in England only has 75 entries. I'm lying, but you get my point. So her first one, her first one was like the usual uh, friends and family exclamation point. And after that, I was so ill. Like, oh, all right. We're, first of all, we already are thankful for friends and family. If you're spending any time with your family on Thanksgiving, they have to know you're thankful because there's no other fucking reason you're doing it. Oh, I like spending time with them. Really? Then you're the one. Maybe you hadn't heard in a year all of your shortcomings listed one after the next. And then drunkenly louder and louder as the day progressed. <laughs> then when the lions lose, and I told you so, the size of fucking Kansas. Uh, and then one of the later ones was like, uh, I swear to God, arms and legs. It's like, and I don't mean this in any puntastic way, but when you list arms as something you're thankful for, you're reaching. You're really, really, really reaching. If, if you have no arms, then I could see why you might miss your arms. If you had a surfeit of arms, say you were Kali or Vishnu, say you had dozens of arms, you, you, might, you might even be annoyed by how many you have. If, if you were a millipede, you might be like, I'm not fucking thankful for legs. 
that one just sucked. I really thought, come on, work a little harder. And then stop with the world peace. I'm as much for world peace as anyone else. It's not going to happen while there's people. After we're all dead and, uh, you know, and it's cockroaches and I hope pteranodons come back. They're like pterodactyls. They're flying reptiles. Uh, there's not enough flying reptiles or any that I can think of. There's a few gliders that'll get out of that. But uh, there's flying mammals and I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, birds, I guess, are really the last of the flying reptiles. But there's no full on like Komodo dragon sized animals. <laughs> that flaps leathery slate gray wings across the fucking <laughs> night sky. And when those animals take the world over again, maybe there'll be peace. Up until then, ugly, fat, white guys with small dicks who hate women are going to be running things. So get in touch with that fucking emotion. So stop with world peace. Just try a little smaller. Uh, I was on a cruise ship on the last poop cast, and now we're at a vodcast. That was more of a sea cast. Um, my wife said, uh, your last poop cast was different because it was funny. <laughs> Jaundiced eye. Uh, I, I have thought of something that's not funny to temper that. Um, I, was, I couldn't help but think today as I was looking at the Republican uh, candidates for president, one, uh, how lucky I am uh, to be a satirist in this era. Uh, <laughs> When not only is the material already written, it's delivered in a flaming pie. <laughs> uh, all you actually have to say is Michelle, and before you get the words Michelle out of your mouth, people are like, stop. <laughs> really? Really? And that only speaks to the fact that I think in my lifetime, I, my first election I voted in was 1978. I voted for Jerry Brown over, I think, Evel Younger. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for remembering nobody. And uh, and then I, in my first presidential election, I voted for Carter against that cocksucker John Anderson and that other cocksucker Ronald Reagan. God rest his soul. It's Thanksgiving. And uh, which, by the way, you know, we talk a lot about Reagan because Reagan was he was such a great person and America loved him and we found ourselves again and he gave us confidence. Um, Reagan had um, students shot during the sixties here when he was governor of California. He had the National Guard come out and shoot people. So just remember that when you're thinking about the evolution clear smile and the, the head shake. Uh, <laughs> little Guatemalan doesn't want communism. <laughs> Sometimes nuns need rough justice. <laughs> he was right about that. But anyways, uh, as I was looking at the candidates, all I could think of was this is the worst slate of people I have ever seen run for president. And I don't just mean in the terms of like their qualifications, which of which five of them have none whatsoever. Two or three of them are like, you could be mayor of a smallish town. But the other five like shouldn't even be one allowed in public, two allowed to speak in public. Three allowed to express these unformed, vacuous, swirling miasma of fucking hatred and pain of their insane inner psyche of 400 years of unbelievable delusional. Somehow they feel that white people and Christians have got the short end in a world run by white people and Christians. Uh, no, I don't just mean as candidates. I mean as people. People. They have come up fucking under the bar. Uh, some of them, if you put them under a microscope and looked for all the chromosomes, might not have them all. 
But having, I haven't been watching the debates because I like to wait until there's only a year before the election. <laughs> instead of two fucking years. Uh, but this one had extra, you know, precipitation that moved the Republican slate forward. I believe it was, uh, as the Firesign Theater once said, the incipient negritude of our president uh, <laughs> caused a forward motion into the, into the election cycle a little bit earlier than it might have been had, had he been Blanche Descartes. Uh, so... Uh, I was thinking about how much I detest the capital steps. Now, I'm going to make... Now, they probably are nice people. I don't think they are. But I think... Uh, Mark is Mark Russell gone? I think he passed. But the Capitol steps are still there, and they do. If you don't know who the Capitol steps are, they do song parody in Washington D.C. and all over the country. I'm sure they have a touring group. Uh, they do song parody of political figures. That's it. Uh, they don't do anything else. I didn't say they did pointed political satire that makes you sit up and go fuck. I'd never considered that alternative point of view until it was brought home through the miracle of lyrics. <laughs> They change one word in a fucking song, and it's so fucking obvious that it makes my head explode. So while I was watching, all I could think of was, Herman Cain is my name, and I seem like I'm quite insane. Because I owned a pizza chain until something happened to my brain, right? What I just did was more complex than any Capital Step song. The, the one that I listened to uh, today was... Uh, when the, when, when the Prime Minister of Italy, something, 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 Berlusconi. That was it. That was it. So there'll be plenty more hilarious Capital Steps parodies of all the... Ca- there's Bachman, Santorum, please don't try to bore them because there's... Peri- ah, see? It's just that easy and it's just that fun. Greg, I couldn't help but notice as a keen-eared observer that you said you detested the Capitol Steps and then you used their faulty premise to launch some of your own hacky material. (laughs) Geniuses steal. Uh, Corrections from the last uh, vodcast. I said uh, David Basehart and Richard Hedison starred in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. That was a simple dyslexic uh, rum-induced remark. Uh, It is, of course, Richard Basehart and David Hedison who were in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I brought it up because on the ship, the Freedom of the Seas that we were on, every time you walked down the hallway, it was like this. So you ended up running back and forth in the the hall. Uh, If you remember every Star Trek episode and every Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea episode, they would simply shake the camera and all the actors would run back and forth across the thing. That's what it felt like at all times on the ship. Richard Basehart, of course, was in a, a fabulous uh, neo-noir named uh, He Walked by Night, and later in Fellini's La Strada, and Fellini personally cast him in it, and then the 50s Moby Dick, not the... I, I don't know how many Moby Dicks there are. There's a lot of them. Uh, there's the Sea Beast with uh, John Barrymore, and then this Moby Dick, he's uh, Basehart's Ishmael, and... Um, uh, Captain Ahab is awesomely Gregory Peck, who is so much more like Abraham Lincoln than Captain Ahab <laughs> that it's noticeable. Now, mind you, when the book was written, Lincoln was like a one-term congressman. I don't think Melville had any knowledge of Lincoln when he wrote the book, but Gregory Peck can't help to be Atticus Finch in every role he plays. So, okay, you're a psychopathic captain of a boat who a whale has bitten off his leg, and he lives his entire life to wreak his vengeance upon that whale and doesn't care whom he sacrifices in a bizarre biblical allegory that's going to last hours. How are you going to play this part, Greg? I'm going to nail a doubloon to the mast. 
I don't want the whale hurt, if possible. <laughs> Sorry, Scout. Not the perfect choice. He does what he can in it. I love Greg Peck more than life itself. He does what he can. There's a scene where he's getting real psychopathic and he, he's trying to whip it up a little as an actor to indicate that the whale that's eaten his leg has now completely consumed him. And he says, um, he tasks me. <laughs> there was a new one with William Hurt. Uh, I don't know if anyone saw that one. I can't remember where I saw it. It was on one of the cable stations. Yeah, there was a new one with William Hurt. Really? Fuck, stop saying really. Yes. <laughs> William Hurt is Captain Ahab. <laughs> he tasks me. <laughs> then there, there was one from about eight years ago with Pat Stewart if anybody saw that one uh, with the captain of the Enterprise also the captain of the Pequod uh, and that one, that one was a good one Patrick Stewart's a, a not bad choice a bit frail but not a bad choice um, frankly I would have cast you know um, what's that actor's name um, he's in that awesome James Woods movie where they're a serial killer and um, uh, Brian Dennehy that's fucking Captain Ahab, right? Someone who can eat scenery, you know what I mean? Like, like if Mickey Rourke didn't look so weird, he would be a great Captain Ahab. Just imagine him with one leg CGI'd off going, the whale, you know, like, you would love that version of Moby Dick. I'm not saying it's great casting, I'm just saying it could have, you know, maybe Sean Connery in the 70s, you know what I mean? Someone just big who could really let fucking loose every once in a while with sadism. Who wants to kill a whale, you know? you got to be a certain kind of fucking maniac. Uh, but in the Richard Basehart one, it's quite good. Uh, I, I like it. I mean, you know, it's John Huston. Orson Welles does an over-the-top minister in it and whatnot. Um, I don't know anyone who's read the whole book. And I have some friends who've started it and read different parts. Anyone ever read the whole book? Nobody? I didn't think so. <laughs> David Hedison, great-looking actor. Um, uh, I've talked in this uh, Proofcast before about a movie called The Greatest Story Ever Told, which has Sal Minio as a prophet in it. Uh, I forget who plays Lazarus. It's like Jack Klugman or someone. It's awesome. It's the best. It's the one with Max von Sydow as Jesus. So it's pretty much like Greg Peck as Ahab. Wow. A giant six-foot-four blonde stentorian Swedish actor playing the carpenter from Nazareth. I don't see how this one missed the mark. Uh, and David Hedison, of all, of all people, plays Philip in this one. But um, uh, he's also, if you recall, Felix Leitner in Live and Let Die. Uh, awesomely, the Roger Moore one. Uh, and the whole crowd's gone quiet. Live and Let Die had Yafit Kato as the bad guy. And, uh, yeah, I gave you every chance in the book, Solitaire. You lied to me. Um, Jane Seymour as Solitaire. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, and speaking of 1974, Joe Frazier. We haven't talked about him. I missed him in the last Poopcast. Uh, this one goes out to Smoke and Joe. Uh, a lot of the kids won't remember who Smoke and Joe is, but um, there's a reason why Muhammad Ali is the most famous and, and, and significant, rather, uh, athlete that ever walked the face of the goddamn earth. Uh, one, he's like if Nelson Mandela met Billie Jean King at Pele's house. <laughs> That's how important he is. 
and two, uh, the caliber of the people that he fought, right? Uh, Floyd Patterson, Sonny Liston. But then in the 60s uh, and then the 70s, he fought uh, Ken Norton, George Foreman, and notably Joe Frazier. Now, when he wouldn't, uh, when, when the government um, uh, had violent uh, Congress with Muhammad Ali's rights and wouldn't let him fight for three years because he was a conscientious objector. You understand what happened. He refused to fight in Vietnam so they wouldn't allow him to prize fight at home. You know, violence has to be measured out in certain increments and you have to be wearing the right outfit to deal out that violence. Thank you. Two people got that. Everyone else. Are you saying... Yes. So <laughs> while he was in prison and not allowed to be a, a fighter, uh, uh, Joe took the championship and Joe gave him money. Joe gave Ali money. And then finally, Ali was allowed to fight. And his first big fight was against Joe at Madison Square Garden. And um, uh, uh, he called Joe, the man who'd helped him, an Uncle Tom and a gorilla, which was awesome. <laughs> Beyond all measure, awesome. That's the kind of fighter Ali was. And, uh, and uh, oh, he's so ugly. That was my favorite fight. <laughs> I'm so pretty and he's so ugly. Yeah. Just right for the throat. Now, Joe uh, is the real Rocky. He's really from Philly. And uh, he really did uh, train hard. He's a sharecropper's son. Uh, this is what makes Joe Frazier so inimitable. So many things. One, he beat Ali's ass in that first fight. Beat his ass and beat him down. Uh, then in the second and third fight, Ali came back on him, and they had the Thriller in Manila, which they each got in, what, 75? Two and a half million dollars each. If I offered you two and a half million dollars now to do something, you would never stop doing backflips all the way to the pleasure chest. <laughs> From here to Gaprol, all, all through the Fistmas holiday, you would do backflips. Two and a half million dollars 40 years ago, is it? That's a while ago, right? You, I'm a, oh, my goodness. That's how much these guys were worth. Secondly, Joe Frazier injured his uh, left arm in a farming accident when he was a child. And like two or three people I could think of, um, because of that, had an insane left hook that he punished Ali's fucking jaw with and sighed, right? He had a short left hook that he could bring real hard. And uh, three-fingered, Peter Centennial, three-fingered Mordecai Brown and pitched for the 06 through uh, uh, 10 championship Chicago Cubs. Yes, you heard me. There was once upon a time, children, a championship Chicago Cubs team. They won the World Series a couple of times. And three-fingered Brown lost part of one finger and almost all of this finger in a threshing accident when he lived on a farm in Iowa. Centennial, because he was born in 1876. Uh, Mordecai, because he was, you know, the Bible. And uh, three-fingered, because... Uh, the dude had a curveball that was unfucking hittable He was a right-hander and his curveball tailed off on fucking right-handed hitters. No one could touch it, right? Like, Bert, what if Burt Blylevin had more super touch powers than he already had? Like, and that's all I can think of with Joe Frazier. Like, he took this disability and turned it into a world championship several times, beat Ali with it, helped Ali, had to take shit from Ali, lost the thriller in Manila. Uh, in between fighting Ali... Got beat by fucking George Foreman when George Foreman was the biggest, baddest motherfucker that ever walked the earth. This is the Gene Hat George Foreman. Uh, and you've, you've heard the call. This is pre-Fry Baby George Foreman. You, you've heard the call on ESPN a thousand times. It's Cosell, right? 
down goes Frazier, down goes Frazier, right? That, that's that fight. That's the Foreman fight. Um, and he was a right guy, right? Like Joe Frazier was a right guy. So after he was the champ, I remember watching Mike Douglas one afternoon when I was a kid, and he was doing a Vegas lounge act called Smokin' Joe and the Hot, you know, Cadoodles or whatever. <laughs> and these girls came out and did a dance, and fucking Smokin' Joe came out in a flyaway collar and like a peach three-piece. <laughs> And sang a fucking song. And it didn't matter at all because he was from Philly and Mike Douglas' show was from Philly and the place was just fucking going bananas. And it was so good. Well, yeah, I'm working on a lounge act now, Mike. You know, it was great. It was great. It was great. Uh, and Ali and Foreman both uh, mentioned him, of course. Ali went to his funeral too. And, and quite right. Uh, as I said, the things that make Ali Ali are, are, are those things, but the fact that uh, a boxer the caliber of Joe Frazier fought him is what makes Ali so formidable. The fact that he beat George Foreman and Joe Frazier in one li- Joe Frazier in one lifetime. <laughs> Joe Frazier won the gold medal in the 1964 Olympics uh, in Tokyo, was it? Uh, and uh, the only American boxer of all the divisions, right? He was a light, he was a heavyweight, but he was a light heavyweight. He was like 205. Uh, and rock fucking solid. Anyway, that one goes out to Joe. And uh, to go along with Joe, you know, once you start about 70 sports, it really, I can't stop because <laughs> if it's Joe, then it's George. And if it's George, then it's Arthur Ashe. And if it's Arthur Ashe, then it's Billie Jean King. And then it's Vita Blue. And then I, then I lose my shit. And all of a sudden, we're talking about Lance Allworth. Um uh, <laughs> Uh, Bambi from the San Diego Chargers um, but we'll go we'll, let's cut back uh, on that one I'm going to leave you loose on this trail because we have many more current events to get to something that I skipped a week ago on the podcast but now we're back to is uh, Silvio Berlusconi the uh, uh, pervy Roman emperor who dressed as a weird candy doll he looked so sticky and icky that he had to carry a tin of powdered sugar and pour it over himself at all times the slick back hair, the Dracula do going on, uh, has resigned as Prime Minister of Italy, finally, uh, leaving that country in a horrible state. Uh, before he left, of course, he made them sign a, a, a reverse Magna Carta where their rights were taken away and they had something inserted inside them. <laughs> These are Silvio Berlusconi's three accomplishments. He owned most of the TV and press in Italy. Two, he made young chicks submit to him and his creepy friends, and then he put them on those TV shows. And three, he destroyed Italy's economy and pride for the rest of this century. So, well done, Silvio Berlusconi. I, I don't really think since... Who can we talk about? Heliogobulus? What Roman emperor really took it downstairs? You know what I mean? Even Diocletian fought the fucking vandals. You know what I mean? Uh, we've got to be talking about maybe toward the end of the... We're in the 400s of the Roman Empire, like Romulus Augustus or something. I mean, this is the end, my only friend. You took a country that has the eighth largest economy in the world, and there is no one in the world who doesn't like Italian food and Italian shoes and Italian cars. No one. They don't excel at rock and roll. They're terrible at rock and roll. It doesn't matter. When you pick up a thing that's made of Italian leather, you're like, oh, oh. I want to reproduce. Italy nailed so many things to the fucking ground, but government was not one of them. 
this is their 500th government since the war, and they picked this cocksucker twice, by the way, because I was in Sicily about five years ago, and they had a, a guy named Prodi. He, he was in for two or three years, and what Prodi did, we were in Sicily when a mafia don named Il Tractor, the tractor, got picked up at his, uh, he was living in a farmhouse out in the countryside in Sicily, and this is how they caught this fucking guy, according to the newspaper, which means, one, it's a lie, and two, it never happened. <laughs> But it's a great story anyway. They were delivering his dry cleaning to him. And they noticed that this shack in the middle of nowhere was getting all these fucking suits in the middle of the week and shit. Like, who has a 4,500 euro fucking suit they're sending out that lives in Skaskoski near Pachawawa? You know, nobody but the tractor. So they brought him in. That was when Prodi was prime minister. Then they stopped persecuting the mafia when they brought Berlusconi back in because, you know, they, they help. They help with things. Uh, we have to. Uh, w- I think the most salient part of the whole Berlusconi leaving is that I saw a video on TV of the people standing in St. Mark's Square singing the Hallelujah chorus. You know you're an unpopular fucking leader. All they did was hang Mussolini up by his heels. When they sing fucking songs about you, you know you suck. Um, the Occupy movement has uh, been going wild, and of course the cops along with the Occupy movement. Uh, it's been a fantastic week for dissent in this country, and an even more fantastic week for um, fascism. Um, thanks, Matt. Everyone else has gone all quiet. It's not going to be funny anymore? Pretty much no. Let's just, uh, uh, we can be proud of a couple of things. Uh, as you know, Egypt's been going wild and Syria's been going wild this week. 34 people dead in the last two days in Syria. But in America, we've only had a Vietnam vet hit with a rubber bullet in the head. He's not talking yet. Uh, one of them with her spleen ruptured, a, pepper, a pregnant woman got pepper sprayed in Seattle. And we also beat the shit out of an 84-year-old woman. So fucking go USA. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, if people are still wondering what the Occupy movement is about, really, stop wondering. Fucking wake up from your deep, deep slumber. It has to be obvious to you at this point that, one, it's not going away, and that, two, it's not a bunch of smelly hippies who have student loans and shit like that. Um, we have how many wars going on right now, and we've just concluded a very, very successful one against Libya. And uh, as you know, having won the Libyan war, I'm sure you all saw a check in your mailbox the next week. <laughs> And when we withdraw from Iraq, you can expect that bag of diamonds you've had your eye on. Um, There's one reason why they fight wars, and I think we know what that is, and that's to make sure that our standard of living sucks balls until the end of fucking time. But we're the richest country on earth, and the luckiest one, and what about American exceptionalism? We've discussed this before. America is not exceptional, unless you consider a country that clings to the lie that a bunch of pilgrims came over in a boat and had a feast with Indians who were friendly, a fucking truism. Then maybe we're exceptional, because we would be the only colonialist country that had a friendly meal with the Indians before we gave them fucking venereal disease in their ass okay here's what Orwell said and if I've quoted it before please forgive me this is from 1984 war is a way of shattering to pieces or pouring into the stratosphere or sinking into the depths of the sea materials which might otherwise be used to make the masses too comfortable and hence in the long run too intelligent that's what war is war is not a settling of grievances between two differing nations There are no differing nations anymore. They foreclosed on Greece. They foreclosed on Spain. They foreclosed on Ireland. There has to be harsh austerity measures 
Really? Companies are making more than they ever were. It's the best time to be rich in the history of the world. Better than in feudal Japan. There's more shit to buy. If you're rich now, there's never been a better time to be rich. And uh, if you think war is for another reason, let me just go into Thanksgiving for a minute here. Uh, we have to celebrate this bloody holiday because Abraham Lincoln, the sainted Abraham Lincoln, uh, wanted to whip up some patriotism during the Civil War. By the way, people until the 1870s never even heard the word pilgrim. No one ever used it. It's a made-up word that we use. And they weren't Puritans. The Puritans lived nearby, by the way. Um, to make this more fun for you, and so that everyone doesn't just get up and walk out of the fucking room, <laughs> I'm going to read you some of the salient facts about Thanksgiving in different hilarious voices to make it more entertaining. <laughs> I thought because he conquered the West in so many John Wayne movies, it would be appropriate if Walter Brennan gave you the history of Thanksgiving. Uh, the reason why it was so easy for white people to conquer uh, our continent is because of the insane plague that we visited upon the Native Americans, right? And I dislike the word Native Americans. I, I'm with George Carlin. Uh, they're not Americans. They never called the place America. So we're imposing the word American on them. Indios is a beautiful word that means with God. Uh, so let's stick with that one. Uh, the Indians who lived here, um, when the Spanish came, brought pigs, whatnot, right? Horses, sheep. Well, those carry diseases, and the Indians were immune to them. In fact, everyone on both continents w had never faced smallpox and shit like that uh, because they came over that land bridge so long ago they were antisepticized. Whereas Europeans lived with their pigs. The pigs lived with them. So uh, here he was. Uh, many of the diseases that had long shattered them simply couldn't survive the journey. People in the Western Hemisphere had no cows, pigs, horses, sheep, goats, or chickens before the arrival of Europeans. Many diseases, from anthrax to tuberculosis, cholera to streptococcus, ringworm to various poxes, are passed back and forth between humans and livestock. Uh, this is about the Puritans, the Pilgrims' bathing habits. The scarcity of disease in the Americas was also partly attributable to the basic hygiene practiced by the region's inhabitants. Residents of Northern Europe and England rarely bathed, <laughs> believing it unhealthy, and removed all their clothing at one time, believing it immodest. The pilgrims smelled bad to the Indians. Squanto tried without success to teach them to bathe. <laughs> Let's talk about Squanto. That's a big part of the, the uh, uh, Thanksgiving myth. The pilgrims landed, right, and all of a sudden a friendly Indian was there. No mentions ever made in all of the um, uh, uh, history books, guidebooks or whatever they're called, uh, uh, why he was able to communicate with them since they clearly didn't speak Mohanagaset or whatever. And he, why, what? They spoke English. And... Um, it's because Squanto had been taken to England many times and all over the world, in fact. Squanto got around town. Squanto's travels acquainted him with more of the world than any pilgrim. He'd crossed the Atlantic six times, twice as a British captain, had lived in Maine, Newfoundland, Spain, and England, as well as Massachusetts. So he was fluent in several languages. Um, uh, they also, uh, there were English people before the pilgrims, obviously, Jamestown, John Smith from Jamestown named it New England and offered to guide the pilgrim leaders. They rejected his services as too expensive and carried his guidebook along with them. <laughs> so cheap cocksuckers who had been thrown out of England for being a bummer 
came with smallpox. Uh, yeah, it's quite a story. And then he asks, why do they leave out Squanto? By the way, the book I'm reading from here is an outstanding book. If you can't read Howard Zinn, you know, I've noticed a lot of times in bookstores now there's all these revisionist uh, sort of conservative history books. Well, I've got news for you. History is already written by conservatives. There's no need for a revisionist conservative <laughs> Lynn Cheney viewpoint of history. History has only been written by conservative people with an agenda that they're fucking pushing. Um, this is called Lies My Teacher Told Me by, um, if I can pronounce his name, James Van Leeuwen. Uh, Lewin, uh, L. O-E-W-E-N. And it goes through every bloody lie. We talked about Columbus, of course, and I, I gave the Indians a hard time in that one. He, they, really, they really did rape and pillage the fucking Arawanics. Um, but uh, Thanksgiving, the pilgrims had nothing to do with it until the 1890s. Did they even get included? For that matter, no one used the term pilgrim until the 1870s. Uh, and then, here's an Indian. In 1970, the Wampanoags, um, who were the tribe that the pilgrims dealt with, the Massachusetts Department of Commerce asked them to select a speaker to mark the 350th anniversary of the Pilgrim's Landing. A guy named Frank James was selected, but he had to show his speech to the white people in charge of the ceremony. And this is what he wrote. Today is a time of celebrating for you. <laughs> but it is not a time of celebrating for me. It is with a heavy heart that I look back upon what happened to my people. The pilgrims had hardly explored the shores of Cape Cod four days before they'd robbed the graves of my ancestors. That's a fucking fact. The pilgrims robbed graves and took shit from them. And the crowd goes quiet again. Greg, what about the lions? They're going to lose. Well, guess what? They didn't let him give the speech. They took it away from him. What a surprise. Uh, origin myths do not come cheaply to glory here this one will be as um, uh, Ronald Coleman I think makes this one funnier uh, the genial omissions and the invented details with which our textbooks retail the pilgrim archetype are close cousins of the overt censorship practiced by the Massachusetts Department of Commerce in denying Frank James the right to speak surely in history truth should be held sacred at whatever cost <laughs> Uh, yeah, it should, but we don't because truth is fucking in a time of uni in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act, said George Orwell. Uh, speaking of the truth, let's talk a little bit about Michael Bloomberg, who is the current uh, Berlusconi of New York. This is what he said in his statement earlier this week. You know that the, the protesters lost their fight in court. Uh, Judge Stanhall was it said that the First Amendment did not protect their right to a, a free speech and to tent up in the park. Uh, Bloomberg said, there's no ambiguity in the law here. The First Amendment protects speech. It does not protect the use of tents and sleeping bags to take over a public space. Well, no. The Constitution omits tents almost entirely. <laughs> I think you'll find the Declaration of Independence hardly mentions Coleman stoves at all. <laughs> and iPhones get little, if any, mention in the, the Iroquois Congress's Declaration of Principles. Even the Mayflower, the Mayflower Compact forgetfully doesn't put in uh, the word uh, 
uh, Blackberry at any point. (laughs) Having read this to you before, I shall read it to you again. I'm not a constitutional scholar, nor do I play one on TV. However, I believe the the Constitution, as looked at by uh, such great minds as Herman Cain and Rick Perry and Michelle Bachman, we have our own prerogative to interpret the Constitution here. Amendment 1, the one he's referring to, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech. What does that mean to you? Abridging the freedom of speech. So if your freedom of speech is to sit in a tent in a park in New York, that's a public park in New York that you're allowed to sit in, and then the police come and tear gas everyone and use sound cannons that blow your fucking eardrums out against you, um, it says abridging the freedom of speech, not unless the cops need to do it. (laughs) And even more to the point, or of the press... And by the way, uh, loads of uh, reporters were uh, massively manhandled in the last sweep. Uh, I don't know if you've been following in the New York papers, but they're fucked off because a dozen or more New York reporters got fucking beaten and gassed, and they weren't ready for that shit. (laughs) They weren't ready, as Paul Mooney says. What did Paul Mooney say when they started having the TSA take your shoes off and shit? He goes, you you people are white. You're not ready for that shit. (laughs) Being asked to show your ID three fucking times? You weren't ready for that, were you? Uh, or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievance. Peaceably to assemble and and petition the government for a redress of grievance. I think in a park with a bunch of signs, having a general assembly meeting each day, putting out uh, 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 sheets that actually declare what the principles are, is petitioning the government for a redress of grievance. Therefore, in my estimation, again, I'm not a constitutional scholar, nor am I a lawyer in any way. Uh, is the essence of petitioning the uh, government for redress of grievance. But what's a grievance? They don't know what their agenda is. They don't have an agenda. What's their agenda? (laughs) Their agenda is simply this. Uh, I'll make it real fucking simple for everyone. The demand for economic justice. That ring anybody's bell? Um... A lot of people have a lot of money. Uh, A lot more people don't have any fucking money. Michael Bloomberg's a billionaire. So therefore, one, he's looking at it through Nero's rose-tinted fucking marble monocle, okay? That's how he's looking at the protest. There were 5,000 books in the Wall Street Occupies People Library. During the eviction of the camp at Zuccotti Park, um, blah, 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 they took all the books, the People's Library, when the librarians arrived to survey what remained of the books, excuse me, they told the city told them they were safely stored. The books, um, assigned copies given by the authors, one donated by the previous day by Philip Levine. Philip Levine is the poet laureate of the United States. He autographed a book and gave it to the Occupy Wall Street protesters, and they had it in the People's Library. Uh, they found, quote, it was clear the books had been treated as trash. It was a sorry sight. Only 1,273 books, a third of the stock, were returned to them, and a third of those were damaged beyond repair. Huh. What do you call a culture that starts destroying and burning books? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> With the trade unionists and the Jews. <laughs> Uh, Glenn Greenwald uh, says this, and he is so... And I'm going to read it as Jeremy Irons to make it funnier. It was that... (laughs) 
uh, yeah, this is what happens. Uh, many, many become increasingly fearful of participating in this citizen movement and also become fearful in general of exercising their rights in a way that is bothersome or threatening to those in power. That's a natural response, and it's exactly what the climate of fear imposed by all abusive police state actions is intended to achieve. To coerce citizens to decide on their own to be passive and compliant, to refrain from exercising their rights out of fear of what will happen if they don't. Um... The reason why they're panicking is because they can see this is for real. And that's why they're sending the cops in. And now, ever since 1999 in Seattle, and that whole uh, WTO debacle, and then the Miami one of a couple years ago, now we're familiar and comfortable with cops wearing full-on Soylent Green riot gear (laughs) and pepper spraying us and tasering us and poking people in the chest and treating us like fucking uh, black people in Alabama in 1961, right? That's what's fucking going on, uh, and believe it. Um, so uh, because you get more and more inured to this kind of behavior, now when you go to the airport, you're used to someone rubbing you below the equator before you get on a plane, as if that has anything to do with the safety of the plane you're on, which is an old-ass fucking plane driven by a drunk fucking person. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, I don't know where to begin on plane safety. <laughs> I'm not saying all pilots are drunks, but, you know. And then the whole idea that we have to have harsh austerity measures. Harsh austerity measures. The state of California is going to come out and austerity measures. Corp- this is from the Los Angeles Times. Corporate profits increased $57.3 billion in the second quarter. They had grown $19 billion in the first three months of the year, but that didn't play out in the labor market. The amount of internal funds available for investment grew $83.8 billion after the second quarter after going $21.1 billion in the first quarter. Enough numbers. You get the fucking idea. What austerity? For whom? Under whose ages? Under whose fucking demand? Why is Iraq and Afghanistan receive unlimited fucking funds and we have to tighten our fucking belts and not have health care and listen to these fucking delusional cocksuckers get up and talk about if people want to die, they should fucking die and shit like that. You've got to be fucking joking me. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um... And a very nice woman wrote a column this week, Rebecca Solnit, uh, and she was at Zuccotti Park. And she describes it, and this will make it a little easier for you to, uh, 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 than my just ranting and raving. If you doubted whether the movement was powerful or mattered, just look at the reaction to people camped out in parks from Oakland to Portland, Tucson to Manhattan. And mentioning Oakland, Portland, and Tucson and Manhattan are uh, very specific because people were injured and hurt by the police in those towns. Uh, but there's only a few bad apples. No, I refuse the bad apple theory. We've institutionalized this. There's a reason why Lieutenant uh, John Pike is infamous in this country. It's not because he's a bad apple on his own any more than Lindy England ordered the fucking torturing at Abu Ghraib. Uh, it's that no one upstairs will take responsibility for anything at this point, And they're all panicking and using the police as an army against People were sitting there. You saw what happened at fucking Davis. If you can show me on the video where any of those protesters even stood up from where they were sitting, you notice they didn't. They sat there quietly and took it while he casually walked along and sprayed them. And it just about says everything that we know that's going wrong with the fucking country right now. It's not so much that Lieutenant John Pike is a fascist or a dickhead, although his actions on the day didn't exactly make you want to invite him over for cocoa. (laughs) 
It's that he's being forced by a giant machine to do this on behalf of people that we don't know who the fuck they are, right? Um, the, the reason why people were protesting in uh, uh, Davis is that, dig this, the tuition went up from last year to this year from 12000 uh, they're talking about a, a possible increase from 12192 to 22200 That's an 81% tuition increase. Do you know anyone with $22,000 of discretionary income right now, much less a fucking 19-year-old? They were sitting there protesting because of that and many other reasons. And the cops who make 100000 a year, by the way, were ordered to fucking walk along and just spray them. And, and they choke and they bomb it and it's horrible being fucking sprayed unlike on Fox News where they said it is a food product because it's made of peppers uh, in any case uh, this is what um, Rebecca Sultan said uh, think of civil society in the state as joined in a marriage of necessity you already know who the wife is the one who's supposed to love, cherish, and obey. That's civil society. Think of the state as the domineering husband who expects to have a monopoly on power, violence, planning, and policymaking. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, this is one reason, reason why the Occupy movement seems remarkably uninterested in electoral politics, though it's political in every way. It's no longer appealing to that violent, errant husband. It's turned its back on him, thus the much-decried lack of demands early on, except for the obvious demand that so many pundits pretended not to see the demand for economic justice. Um, and then to make it so that it's not all a big bummer, um, you have to understand that this is going on and on and on and that it's going to get bigger and bigger and better and better and that they are going to have to fucking deal. A note got handed to the president yesterday and I don't know if anyone saw this um, and I hope I have it here. Oh, anyway, Rebecca Solnit says, uh, my advice, dream big, occupy your hopes, talk to strangers, live in public, don't stop now. Alexander Dubček, the government official turned hero of the Prague Spring of 1968, once said, you can crush the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. Uh, it's a little more, yeah. Um, so, uh, Lieutenant Pike, uh, uh, James Baldwin was talking about what happened in Alabama in the old days, and Jim Clark um, put a cattle prod against a, a black woman's chest. He was a policeman in Alabama, a, a sheriff, in fact. And this is what James Baldwin said about um, uh, Sheriff Clark, which goes to serve for what uh, we think about Lieutenant Pike. Uh, he cannot be dismissed as a total monster. I'm sure he loves his wife and children and likes to get drunk. One has to assume he's a man like me. Something awful must have happened to a human being to be able to put a cattle prod against a woman's breasts. What happens to the woman is ghastly. What happens to the man who does it is in some ways much worse. Uh, so, in other words, it's all a big machine and all that jazz. Uh, and policemen are people, too. If I could find this bloody note that the president got today. Did anyone see it? Certainly someone saw it. It was, a, it was an Occupy. Someone handed it to him. He was in Manchester, uh, New Hampshire. That bastion of free thinking. And um, <laughs> a guy handed him a note. Here it is. Mr. President, over 4,000 peaceful... And it was, such, it was a little note like this. And the guy who handed it to him looked like Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> He had glasses and a little red beard. He'll be playing him in the TV movie. <laughs> he handed him a little square note like that, and Obama took it in his hand. And the AP photographer was so had such a great groovy lens, he actually got a photo of Obama holding the note. So this is right off that photo. Whoops, it says, Mr. President, over 4,000 peaceful protesters have been arrested while bankers continue to destroy the American economy. And then he crossed out that and wrote, with impunity. Um, I would say even more to the point, 4,000 protesters have been arrested. No bankers have been arrested. None, not one. 
not the head of AIG, not the head of Bank of America, which, by the way, Bank of America is on thin fucking ice this week, you guys. The government is kind of getting down on their ass for the fact that they're not doing shit. Uh, you must stop the assault on our First Amendment rights. Oh, again, the First Amendment rears its ugly head. Uh, this would be, I would think, the most overt and obvious example of petitioning the government for redress of grievance. <laughs> Handing the president a note <laughs> is really what it's all about, isn't it? You must stop the assault on the First Amendment rights. Your silence sends a message that police brutality is acceptable, which it absolutely does. At a certain point, he has to say, either you're Reagan or Nixon or you're not. Because Reagan and Nixon demanded students be fucking chased down with dogs and shit like that. Mm. Uh, Either is you is or is you ain't, LBJ, is the question on that one. Uh, Banks got bailed out, we got sold out, and that's what the protest note says. Um... And so that was very exciting. I haven't been able to find out the person's name, and I haven't been able to get any identification on the person who handed um, Obama this note in Manchester, New Hampshire. And that strikes me as odd, considering an AP photographer was there and got a picture of the bloody note, and there must have been a dozen bloody reporters there and all the national press. No one went up to interview this fucking guy? I I looked on Google for ages for this and couldn't find it, but I did, of course, find um, government grade according to government survey. That one made me laugh a little bit. Uh, if you think change can't happen, the Yemen, that bastion of democracy. President Ali Abdullah Saleh of Yemen agreed to step down on Wednesday after 33 years in power. The fourth Arab leader swept away by protests this year. Yeah, fucking A, you guys. Uh, and in Syria, um, the warning, uh, the 34 people, as I said, killed in the last day in Syria. More by the time this plays. Um, the ambassador, whose name is awesomely Robert Ford, yes, he shot Jesse James, <laughs> uh, would not return to Syria this month as planned. What does that tell you when the American government pulls our ambassador out of Damascus? Uh, yeah, credible threats, they call it. Um, so uh, change can come, and change is coming. Um, and they can stamp their feet, and they can beat people, and they can act crazy, and they can send their messengers out, and they can try to control everything. But everybody knows what the fucking real story is. Uh, and that, that's what gives me hope. Let's go to some questions. Do we have any time? Five? Uh, smartest at a special thing.com. You may query, poke, prod. Also, by the by, the, by, the by uh, Sunday at 7 o'clock, we'll be at the Comedy Bar in Toronto. This will drop by then, won't it? And then, which only holds 100 people. Um, and then where are we? We're in um, Atlanta on uh, the 5th on Sunday at 7 o'clock at the Laughing Skull Lounge during the Poopcast. And then we'll be in London, England on um, the 7th, Wednesday night at the Soho Theater at 10.30 during the Poopcast there. So yes, there's three in the next two weeks. So uh, don't look for new material. There's going to be a lot of Orwell. <laughs> Uh, these are the questions. I don't read them beforehand. In fact, let's go back to the cruise. These are the cruise ones. I never read these off on the cruise because I was so busy. I mesmerized by the sound of my own voice. Uh, smartest at a special thing.com and I will answer. So don't, uh, if you're going to email me on my fan mail one and ask me a question, I'm, that's not where I'm going to answer it. It's going to be through smartest at a special thing because then Matt and Ryan will deal with it. Mr. Proops. Riley Fournier says, from Grand Prairie, Grand Prairie, Alberta, in Canada. Mr. Proops, yes. Um, Ms. 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 Mr. Riley. You mentioned you were in Alberta, Edmonton, I believe, not too long ago for a Whose Line Is It Anyway show. And I was wondering what you thought of the city, parentheses again, and the area. 
Also, would you ever come back? Uh, question mark. Yes. To address the ending of the question, yes, I would go back to Edmonton, Alberta. I like Edmonton. I like Calgary just as well, but I like Edmonton a lot. I haven't been in Edmonton in ages, so uh, I must have been from a much earlier uh, proofcast. Also, our live show from Whose Line Is It Anyway is uh, very, very cleverly titled Who's Live Anyway? Yeah. Wow. Talk about avoiding a lawsuit. And... Um, <laughs> Well, I was wondering what you thought of the city and the area. I adore Edmonton. I adore Alberta. Uh, it has money, so it's different than other parts of Canada because it's bubbling with oil. The team from Edmonton is called the Oilers, for kitten's sake. <laughs> There's lots of Ukrainians around there, so um, you'll be served a pierogi at some point. Why is it that the uh, pierogies you get in uh, Illinois and Michigan are pierogies? Is it because they're ruskies? It is, isn't it? Theirs are Polish pierogies, aren't they? Pierogies are Ukrainians, aren't they? I'm, you know, they don't call me the smartest man in the world. <laughs> for nothing, for, for yet. I figured that out on my own. I like Edmonton, it's good fun. And I like Canadians. You guys are awesome. Uh, you don't shoot each other that much and you read, so good for you. Uh, who is this? Royal Proops, the Royal Proopster, says Eric. Who is your favorite... Radio play, baseball radio play-by-play announcer in history. Well, I think you'll find the history of radio baseball announcing only extends back about 80 or 90 years. It's not exactly like there was, I'm sure there was in the old days, 1833. I say, what a dashing play that was. Here comes a high pitch and it's a daisy cutter. (laughs) Oh, the umpire is a gentleman most favored by nature. Why, look at those bonnie whiskers. That man appears to be inebriated. Calamity! Well, the participants in this game have certainly showed a most regal bravado. Now let us venture forth into the next inning. Uh, A favorite baseball in history. I grew up listening to Lenny, Lenny Fatar and Marty Brenneman from the Pirates and Reds. We have a a Reds fan here today. I'm 32. Marty Brennan is fabulous. Uh, and thinks, and think they just captured the spirit of the game like no one else who is your guy. Thanks. Well, I'm a Giants fan, so uh, for me, it's got to be Lon Simmons. Uh, when I was really, really little, Russ Hodges was still alive, and he had come from New York, and he, and he would um, awesomely um, say, bye-bye, baby, which is home run call. So Willie Mays or McCovey would hit a home run, and he'd go, it's bye-bye, baby. Lon Simmons would go, you can tell it goodbye. <laughs> And Bill Thompson would say, you can kiss a goodbye, which I always loved. Uh, then Hank um, Greenwald was our 80s announcer. And Hank Greenwald c- just hated reading the promotional announcements. Now, my favorite part of Hank Greenwald was there'd be a rain delay or something, and they'd go, and they'd have to read about, like, bat days next Tuesday or whatever it was. And Hank Greenwald would be like this. Well, the rain continues here in Pittsburgh. And, um, hey, kids, want to have some fun? <laughs> Wednesday against the Padres is bat night. First 20,000 kids with a ticket will receive a bat. Like he just hated reading those fucking things. And then John Miller now, uh, because John Miller, uh, who is in the Hall of Fame, I believe, has a mellifluous, beautiful voice. Uh, ESPN took him off Sunday Night Baseball because they wanted it to eat cock. He had been the announcer with Joe uh, Morgan for ages. Joe Morgan, I grant you, wildly annoying. Knows everything about baseball, and that's the problem. I wouldn't have swung at that pitch. I knew he was going to throw a backdoor slurve on three and one. Like, oh, no, you fucking didn't know it. You just said you knew it. 
But dude hit, uh, what, a couple, 300 homers, stole 600 bases, two MVPs in a row, so shut up. Um, <laughs> but John Miller talks like this. John Miller has a beautiful voice, and here comes Tim Lincecum for the top of that. I can't even do John Miller. Also speaks fluent Spanish. So he is just, I would say, John Miller at this point. Lon Simmons of all time. Uh, having lived down here, though, for ages, Vince Scully is not to be denied. Uh, and here's the thing that always ro- uh, rocks my world about Vince Scully and Rick Monday and all the other uh, Dodger announcers of days current and past. None of them says Los Angeles. They don't call them, they don't, it's not the Los Angeles Dodgers. We don't live in Los Angeles. It's Los Angeles or Los Angeles. They all of them say it. Listen, and you'll see that I'm right. They say Los Angeles. It's just fucking great. It, honestly, it's like a Ross McDonald novel. You know what I mean? It's, it's the 40s here. Always. I love that. Well, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And <laughs> Farmer John. Delicious sausages. What the Fourth of July. What are the Thanksgivings coming? And some people like turkey, but other people like sausages. And I go, oh, no. What? No, they don't. No, they don't. Uh, of course, uh, Ron Fairley, one of my favorites, old time giant announcer, announced the Mariners for years. The reason I love Ron Fairley, one, he played on the team with Kothax in the '60s, but two, um, Ron Fairley couldn't tell the difference between Mark Grant and Mark. Uh, uh, oh, I've just forgotten his name. The, we had two Marks who pitched for the Giants in the 80s, and one was left-handed and one was right-handed. Uh, one went on to win the Cy Young as a reliever, Mark Davis, with the Padres. And Mark Davis was, I believe, right-handed, and Mark Grant was left-handed. And he'd go, well, here comes Davis. Oh, check that, Grant. <laughs> like, dude, he's holding the ball on the other side of his body. Doesn't that even register with you at any point? Uh, thank you, Eric. And Marty Brenneman is immortal. Eric says, Sir Proops, what is the most deplorable article of clothing a man could own and should never wear? <sighs> First of all, if you're even considering, if you, if you are a seed bearer and you are considering buying a pair of Crocs and you are not Mario Batali, I take the gravest possible exception. Secondly, I don't mind a tie tack. I don't even mind a whole bunch of tie clasps. It's those tie things with chains. Really? Are you in Chris Isaac's band? Two-tone colored dress shirts that have a white collar and a pink stripey fucking body. No, there's no reason for them. I thought we dealt with that in the 80s. I thought Gordon Gecko wrote the fucking law on that shit. There's really, really no reason for those at all. Ever, ever, ever. Or little socks that you're supposed to wear inside deck shoes. Put some fucking powder in your deck shoes. Don't wear little fucking fruity socks in your deck shoes. They don't work. I speak from hard experience. (laughs) And also, ease up on the hats, okay? The world is not a Kyle Kinane lookalike contest. (laughs) If you're a gorgeous Latino guy, or you look like Edward J. Olmos in Blade Runner, then you can wear a fedora. If you're a six and a half foot tall black guy whose skin is so dark it's almost purple, you can wear a yellow hat and you will look cool. <laughs> if you are a fat white guy with a beard, <laughs> you might as well wear a Napoleon hat. 
Because that's the amount of pussy that hat is drawing towards you. It's like you're a mental patient. Cool it with the hats. Fran Leibowitz uh, and, and her alphabet. And no hats. Uh, thank you, Eric. I'll probably think of some other ones before the... Uh, knickers, I think. If you're under eight and it's the 20s, fine. If you're Andre 3000, fine. If, if you're Payne Stewart, it's no longer an issue. Because you're fucking not here anymore to wear them. Otherwise, new. New on the knickers. New. Oh, if you're in the group The Lockers and it's 1972 and the Ohio players are playing Love Roller Coaster, then yes, you can wear knickers. Otherwise, your invitation to the Honeycomb Hideout has been canceled. Oh. <laughs> Come to the Honeycomb Hideout. The Honeycomb Kids are there. Joe asks Dr. Pruptorius. Mm. And the sequel, Dr. Pruptorius Rises from the Grave. <laughs> yes, what is your question, Joe? Karloff or Lugosi? Oh, buddy, great question. Karloff or Lugosi? Uh, you may have noticed that my Jeremy Irons is simply a shitty Karloff. <laughs> But Boris Karloff's slightly different. Uh, in the Body Snatchers, he says, uh, Oh, Toddy. And he says, Don't call me Toddy. I wouldn't call me Toddy if I were you. Oh, you wouldn't, would you, Toddy? <laughs> but Lugosi, wow. Listen to the creatures of the night. <laughs> what music they make. <laughs> I know this one's not fair, but tie. Tie boat, Joe. I fucking love Karloff. I love Karloff. Uh, uh, the, the original uh, Scarface with um, Paul Muni. Karloff's the gangster he wipes out, and look how skinny he is. And I was watching his last picture about six months ago, uh, the Peter Bogdanovich one, Targets, where there's a serial killer at a strive-in movie theater, and Karloff's the monster movie star there. There's just really not enough you can say about Karloff, how great he was. Uh, the Raven, he's spo- and supposed to be the loveliest person in the world, too. Lugosi, unbelievable. When he couldn't get heroin or fucking speed or booze, he formaldehyde. Like, that's how hardcore he was. Like, him and Tor Johnson would raid the formaldehyde bar. Uh, and, of course, um, uh, Martin Landau's immortal portrayal of Lugosi, which has given all of us who have ever worked on a set something to say the rest of our lives. Let's shoot this fucker. <laughs> so, tie, tie boat on that one, boys. Uh, let's see. Plenty potentiary of pot proofs. Ah. Uh, and meaning I am the ambassador. Uh, Sir Greg, uh, uh, a no name on that one. Where do you rate, if at all, Billy Squire's voice in the pantheon of great rock vocalists? Oh. <laughs> Billy Squire? You mean, stroke it, stroke it. Oh, that one? Well... It's my understanding, one, that the Pantheon has not begun construction. <laughs> not that Pantheon, at least. I, I, I actually don't rate him. I, you don't have a name on here. There's just two lines. Well, two-line person. I, I don't. You know who I rate high? Robin Zander from fucking Cheap Trick. Maybe the most underrated rock singer of all time. If Cheap Trick didn't have two unfuckable guys in their band... <laughs> 
They might be considered the greatest band of all time. I don't know how Dire Straits or U2 or R.E.M. did it because no one's fuckable in those bands. And yet they're ungodly huge. Ungodly huge and worshipped and venerated. And they really suck. They can't even play a fucking Chuck Berry song. Cheap Trick, on the other hand, rocks all fucking night and then, oh, gets up early to rock more. (laughs) If you want my love, you got it. I mean, come on. Robin Zander's the greatest. And uh, both ACDC lead singers, Bon and Angus. Uh, not Angus, uh, Brian. Uh, Angus is the guitar player. Those two guys are underrated. ACDC, next to Ramones, might be the greatest band of all time. Again, completely unfuckable. Like, seriously. <laughs> That's the problem, right? I mean, you know. It wasn't just that the Beatles were lyrical geniuses and had sensitivity and understood the world and were for peace and shit like that. It's that you could shag any or all of them in different con... You know, you could put them together. They were like Lego. George is fucking me from behind while I fuck Paul, you know? That's what made them so great. And the Stones had Mick so and Brian, so fuck it. They had two guys that were awesome, but everybody else, wow, really? I mean, R.E.M., you just, and R.E.M. broke up, and you're like, I'm going to Athens, Georgia in two weeks, too, and I'm going to have to answer for this. You realize that, I'm going to have to answer for this. People in Athens are, like, literally weeping into their fucking grits. I like, like, two songs by R.E.M. What's that one? What's the frequency, Kenneth? That one was okay. That's it. And you, too. You got to be fucking kidding me. You're from Ireland. John Millington Singe, uh, Oscar Wilde, George Bernard Shaw, Seamus Haney. How many people uh, of note, of letters, are from Ireland? What did you two write a musical about? (laughs) Spider-Man. I am taking away your Irish credentials. Really? That many authors come from an island and you wrote Spider-Man, huh? Wow. Well, let me tell you this, Bono. It's a shitty choice! He spins a web! You fucking don't rock. You don't rock. Um, thank you for that single dotted, double, double dotted Billy Squire. And if you like Billy Squire, right on. Good for you. Wow. You probably, what was that other, Aldo Nova? You probably like them too. And, uh, you probably like that song, Hot Child in the City. By Nick Gilder. Um, let's see here. What, oh, oh, Proopsiest of Kittens. Well, that's awfully cute. Uh, we have no time, right? Yeah. Okay. Julia asks, <laughs> What are your thoughts on Jean-Luc Godard? <laughs> Other than that he wore fuck-off shades, that is. Pink fluffy hugs to you and the audience. Pink fluffy hugs to you guys. <laughs> That's from Julia. Um, see shall eyes, right? The Beatles. Um, Jean-Luc Godard, well, kittens, what can you say about Jean-Luc Godard? Uh, Breathless and Alphaville, uh, I mean, he's most stylish. Also, too much polemic, let's be honest. First of all, the actress Anna Karenina is on all of his movies. Her name is, you know, immortal. Uh, I I like his pictures, but they don't... For me, I don't think it's as... I mean... (laughs) 
Eric Romer is more amusing. Uh, Truffaut is more light and delightful. Uh, all the old-time directors, Rennie Claren like that, have... I, I mean, of all the new wave directors, I guess Godard has the most manifesto. But sometimes you watch them now and you're like, if you could put the book down while you're shooting this, I'd enjoy it a little bit more. I'm, I'm happy there's titties and smoking. I'm happy. <laughs> Uh, he also knew quite a lot about film. I think he's one of those critic... T- is he not a critic-turned-filmmaker? A writer-turned-filmmaker, or maybe even artist-turned-filmmaker. Um, and if you're going for the greatest filmmaker, uh, French filmmakers, I think he's have to say uh, Renoir uh, and Cocteau. I'm sure I'm forgetting someone, and I'm going to be castigated for that roundly uh, quite soon. Um, but that's what I think about Godard. The shades were fuck-off. There's no question of that. Truffaut, no way was Truffaut. Uh, didn't have as good a wardrobe. Uh, the jean jacket that he's the leather tan jacket that he's wearing in um, uh, is completely unsupportable even by 70s measure Uh, thank you Julia or is it Julia Um, right my favorite heckle okay here's a goodie this is from Harrison uh, Dexter's baby Harrison writes El Jefe Ah, yes. Buenas noches, Harrison. Uh, I just want to get one thing out of the way before I ask my question. All right. I think we have time for this. Thank you for doing The Smartest Man. It is, without question, my favorite podcast with two A's. Are you an Afrikaner? Podcast? Avenida Kral? The Zulus will attack in the shape of a bull's horns. This is my country. What are you doing here? Thank you. That was my Afrikaner accent from the movie Zulu. Uh, now then, I was... Uh, thank you for that, uh, Harrison. Uh, I'm glad it's your favorite podcast. I appreciate that. I really do. When people say things like, I like the podcast, but it's hard to understand the format. I'm like, there is no format, you ning-nong. I just drink and talk about shit. Fucking format. What am I, the radio? <laughs> no, you're, you're in the wrong place if you want format. That one in. He, sometimes, you know, he talks about politics and I disagree with it. Well, that's your prerogative, you fucking neo-Nazi. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. I love when people get hung up on people's politics. Uh, that stands in the way of entertainment. That always makes me laugh. Then you could never watch a Jimmy Stewart movie again the rest of your life if that was the problem. Or listen to a Billy Squire record. (laughs) Everybody! (laughs) Seriously. Cheap trick, really? Is there a better song than She's Tight? I don't think so. She's a talented girl. She's tight. She's got her head down tight. (laughs) Fucking good record, that one. Now then, I was hoping you'd like to share your favorite or one of your favorite heckle stories with us. If not one of yours, then perhaps one you witnessed or heard about. Gratefully yours, Harrison. Harrison, where do I begin? (laughs) The times I've been heckled that I can remember... My favorite one took place with a friend of mine named Jack Rikus years ago. And in San Francisco, we gave each other comedian names because we didn't feel our names fulfilled uh, comedy enough. Like, for instance, I gave Margaret Cho the name Maggie Chin. Because I thought, no one knows about Koreans. Uh, But if you're Chinese, it's much funnier. 
So, and then my name was Gary Everett. And uh, Jack Rikus, who is in the story, I gave him the name Jackie Reichman because it was funnier. So, uh, not to you guys, but to us then it was. <laughs> you guys just do whatever because it's whatever. You guys, Thanksgiving soon and you'll see your family and then you'll be happy. Jackie and I t- uh, pitched up at Tingle's uh, Disco in San Mateo, south of San Francisco. Uh, Tingle's was in the Dempsey Hotel, and the Dempsey Hotel was shaped like a castle. Because as you know, California's medieval heritage extant. <laughs> when you think of all the awesome medieval castles that are here in Los Angeles, whenever I pass a castle-shaped building in L.A., my heart swells. Because all I can think about is the War of the Roses and how frenetically it was fought here. <laughs> Uh, it's very important to remember the medieval heritage of California. And uh, the Dempsey Hotel had turrets and cupolas and little, you know, garrets and whatnot. Mm. No, it's not there. I think it's gone. And more's the pity. In any case, uh, the, the Tingles disco was in there. And uh, it was a horrible place that had a dance floor and then all these Star Trek lights. It was like you were being tried by aliens. <laughs> What's that Star Trek episode? Five million quatloos on the Earthling. You know, that one where the brains just talk to each other with voiceover. Um, so there was a yellow brain and a red brain in a jar and that's who judged you so you can imagine how involved the show were they'd like turn off the music and turn hey we're having comedy now you cocksuckers everybody shut up (laughs) so I'm on stage there Jackie did his set and Jackie had a great joke that went like this um uh, teenagers will look you square straight in the eye and go sorry dude fucked up <laughs> which was a joke I always liked uh, what, could, what could possess you to park the car on the roof and then what was the other one um, in any case uh, he, he, believe it or not with that act he finished and um, he's much funnier than that I'm not doing him any justice uh, I went on and I'm up there about five minutes and no one's listening at all the crowd's just rowdy and they're talking and shit and this dude got up out of the house right and he came onto the stage and there was no stage the stage was a, a Tybo wedge with Caraway and <laughs> this guy gets on the stage and I, I'm like freak out right because he's big right he's a big dude and he's with a whole group of drunk guys I pick up my mic stand right and in a left handed stance if I've told the story I'm ashamed but if I didn't in a left handed stance I'm right handed I picked it up left handed and I said if you come up here I'm going to bash your fucking skull in right (laughs) I'm wearing like a skull shirt and a bolo tie right you know sleeves pushed up you know fucking orange jeans you know it's I don't know what year it is right and uh this dude didn't even hear me. He was so drunk. He just bowed to his friends and they all applauded and he walked off the stage. So all the rest of the people in the room have witnessed me standing there, vibrating teeth clenched, sweating furiously, having just threatened the biggest guy in the room that I was going to bash his skull in. He took no more notice of me than a fucking bird on a hippo's ass. As you can imagine after that, it was a little difficult to get the crowd back. And I had, uh, I spent uh, 40 more minutes up on stage. I went through every joke I knew. And yes, you're goddamn right. I just fucking punished that crowd. And I, if you're going to go quiet because I threatened to kill one of you assholes, fuck you. You're here. I'm going to read the Bhagavad Gita, the Koran, the Torah. I'm reading the whole enchilada tonight, man. You're getting the whole fucking, you know, call me Ishmael.
But my favorite two heckle stories of all time are Kirk Douglas had a son named Eric Douglas who was quite mad and died eventually of drugs and whatnot. And Eric used to pitch up at festivals and shit where I was at and say he was a comedian. Well, he wasn't really. He was just kind of crazy. And one of his jokes, he didn't really have any jokes, but one of them was, you come down to breakfast and there'd be Spartacus at breakfast, right? Well, all of his jokes were about Kirk Douglas because what the fuck else was he going to talk about? He was crazy and coked up. So he played the comedy store in London and he got on stage and um, uh, one of the English people got up in the crowd and went, I am Spartacus' son. And then another one, I am Spartacus' son. I am Spartacus' son. I, am, I swear to fucking God, they really did do it. And then my other favorite one that happened in England, and a, to- a-, a-, a comic told me this one. I can't remember who was on stage. Uh, a heckle from the crowd. I want to have your children so I can have them gassed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fucking heckle. <laughs> Thank you, Harrison. There's no coming back from that heckle. Uh, Katie asks, K-A-T-Y. Uh, Katie asks... <laughs> Dear Mr. Proops, yes, dear Katie, which film have you seen the greatest number of times? Oh, kittens. My wife would probably say Butch Cassidy. I've been barred from watching Butch Cassidy while she's in the room, (laughs) mostly because I'm just doing the dialogue with it now. (laughs) Don't you sit it. Get it? Your times is over. (laughs) You're going to die, and you're going to die bloody, and all you can do is choose where. Something out there scares you, huh, Sundance? What happened to the old bank? It was beautiful. People kept robbing it. Small price to pay for beauty. Morons. I have morons on my team. No one is going to rob us going down the mountain. We have got no money going down the mountain. I've seen Rocky Horror a lot of times, too, but not in a long time. I'm, a couple years ago, I watched it again. And as I've talked about, we were in Hamilton, New Zealand earlier this year, where Richard O'Brien is from. And we, and we listened to the whole album after in tribute to him. I haven't watched it in a while, but I do, that, one's a, that one's a cracker, too. I would, uh, might be um, uh, Patton. I've seen Patton and Lawrence of Arabia. I know those are long, but maybe not as many times as Butch. Lawrence of Arabia, wow. Wow. Wowzers, McTavish. Uh, <laughs> You love him. I fear him. <laughs> Everything in the movie is about Lawrence's character. Early in the movie, he lights the match, right? And he, uh, oh, David Hartman. The trick is not mine. Uh, uh, how can you do it? It hurts. It damn well hurts. It's, uh, the trick is not minding. It hurts, right? So he's a masochist. Now we know he's a masochist. We don't know he's a sadist yet, but we know that he likes pain. Then he leaves the room, and one guy goes, he's balmy. And the other one goes, he's all right. <laughs> That's fucking good screenwriting, right? It's the beginning of the movie. Now the rest of the movie. Is he barmy? Is he all right? <laughs> and then later, and he's, his face is covered with sand, and he's looking out of the, the Suez Canal, and a guy pulls up and goes, Who are you? Close up. <laughs> Who are you? Uh, uh, it, you know what would have made Lawrence of Arabia better? And all the movies I'm talking about? If there had been CGI... <laughs> For real. And you know what would have made Butch better? A rock soundtrack. <laughs> Fuck yeah, man. I put a ring on it. I put a ring. Yeah, that would have made Butch fucking better, right? Uh, okay. Let's see. Uh, oh, we already did the deplorable acts of clothing. 
Here we go. Uh, your most venerated proofs, Tyler asked. Thank you, Alana. Uh, if your life was an 80s movie, what would occur during your montage scene and what song would be playing in the background? Uh, I think you know what would be happening. We'd be rolling a fat one and you'd hear. I can feel it coming in here tonight. No, I only picked that because I love uh, Miami Vice so very much. I, I would never pick a Phil Collins song for anything. It would be Let's Go Crazy by Prince. Uh, and it would be me making a chicken tetrazzini in slow motion. <laughs> That's been the Smartest Man in the World podcast. I want to thank you all very much for coming out here. We'll see you again when we convene one more time. Happy Thanksgiving and happy Christmas season to all of you. I wish you nothing but peace and love. Good night. 